As voting day approaches, are you ready for armed and uniformed poll watchers? Well, it's happened before. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. Throughout the history of Western civilization, emperors and kings, along with feudal lords of the realm, have fought hard and often won to prevent the rise of republicanism and democracy. Awful wars have been fought over whether the public will actually matter in governance. Once that part of imperial rule is chipped away, those who remain determined to rule for their own power and money interests have not given up and instead have been very creative to find new ways to suppress the vote. Well, it was most obvious in the 20th century South where Jim Crow laws and very real threats of violence were used to intimidate black people from daring to vote. Those same interests that insist on white male privilege are still quite active today and they have become more creative than just threatening people with guns pointed at them. And they are doing it. Trump has said remarkably openly that he intends to suppress the vote, as they insist it is Democrats who will rig the election. Always say about your opponent what is true about yourself. Goebbels said that. His people in power truly hate democracy and love dictatorships. There's no lack of evidence. They clearly intend to crush participatory democracy and install a police state instead which requires effectively suppressing the vote in certain democratic areas. No doubt they will lie, cheat, and steal very aggressively and creatively. What will the Trumpists do to intimidate voters and crush democracy in the upcoming election? We have some clues, though without a doubt there's more we don't know about. I just recently read about what happened in New Jersey in 1981. Our guest today, Mark Krasovic, uh, associate Professor of History and American Study at Rutgers University, Newark, where I never would have been accepted, wrote a story which caught my eye. It is entitled Armed Poll Watchers, New Jersey's Cautionary Tale Ahead of the 2020 Presidential Election. This goes along with another article titled Trump's Suggestion of Deploying Law Enforcement Officials to Monitor Polls Raises Specter of Voter Intimidation. Uh, as Trump himself has said, uh, as Trump himself has said, if too many Americans actually vote, it will be the end of the Republican Party. I do think the president is exaggerating, but without a doubt, the reality is they fully intend to do what is necessary to scare people away from exercising our right, a right so many have fought and died for. Some skeptics may think we're exaggerating to suggest the Republicans would actually cheat and instead of just winning fairly, would intimidate certain specific voters. Voting is such a foundational element of what makes America, America. Would they really do that nasty stuff? Well, they did. Our guest, Mark Krasovic, was there in New Jersey in 1981. And he writes that, In November, voters in several cities saw posters at polling places printed in bright red letters. In all caps, WARNING, they read, this area is being patrolled by the National Ballot Security Task Force, unquote. Well, what did these patrols look like, and what specifically did they do 
when people showed up to vote? Oh, well, thanks for the question, Bert. Thanks for having me on. Um, I just want to make clear, I was on the ground in New Jersey in 1981, though not yet of voting age. So um, I actually learned about um, this story um, fairly recently, um, this past summer. And um, it turns out a lot of New Jerseyans, even those of us who were of voting age in 1981, um, have forgotten or never really knew this story. Um, so I'm glad it's I'm glad it's uh, making the rounds again. So the patrols um, varied from uh, city to city, and they were in um, the state's largest cities. That would be Newark, Trenton, um, some cases in Atlantic City, Vineland in the south of the state. Um, some are courts of patrols in Patterson, East Orange. Um, so they targeted mostly black and brown voting yeah. districts yeah, um, in New Jersey cities, yep. right? And um, so the, and the common elements of them were uh, the posters, as you mentioned, which seem to have been um, fairly widespread, um, that some of the patrols um, were armed, um, that they wore armbands identifying themselves as members of the so-called National Ballot Security Task Force, and um, they were mostly white, though not exclusively. And they were off-duty uh, police officers and sheriff's deputies. Oh, isn't that fun? What does that remind me of? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't wearing hoods, though, right? <laughs> not that I've heard. Um, so the, these National Ballot Security Task Force, where the heck did they come up with that? What, who authorized them? And what was the general reaction right so there was a bit of a scramble to disown various elements of this um, as it was discovered um, but it was essentially a joint project of the national um, rnc and the state republican party uh, here in new jersey and um, the regional director of the rnc um, hired a man named John Kelly to run a ballot security, um, a ballot security project in New Jersey. And um, as far as we know, it was Kelly who sort of um, engineered the details of what happened. Fascinating. And uh, it's just, it's such a good name to scare people. National Ballot Security Task Force. It sounds so official, but was it in any way official? I mean, was they some some you know uh, Republican thugs just make that up? Do you think? I yes, it was made up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was not you know an official um, right. state sponsored um, organization uh, of any sort. But right, it it sort of wears the mask of mm -hmm. something official, both in the you know the armbands, which very soon get compared to um, you know. The KKK, as you alluded to, to the Gestapo, um, you know, brown shirts, all these words, um, all these references are used in the wake of this. Um, so they're made to look some, somewhat official and to sound official. Um, and it's actually those attempts that, that initially got the effort into trouble because the, the posters, um, which again, large red lettering um, with the, the official sounding name, um, did not identify uh -huh. um, the funder. And these were hung all over um, 
as far as I can tell, both inside in some cases and outside, you know, surrounding blocks um, of polling places. And it's um, against the law, at least it, it was in 1981 in New Jersey, um, and I assume many other places, to have, you know, what is essentially campaign literature or party oh, literature right, right. Um, around a polling place without having um, the funder identified. So mm -hmm. very quickly, that early afternoon of voting day, um, local Democratic a activists um, bring this before a judge, and he immediately orders that the posters – um, at least be taken down and that the armbands um, not be used. The Republican governor, Thomas Kane, won the election by fewer than 1,800 votes. And New Jersey has a big population. I have no idea what it is, but it's not a small state, big, major industrialized state. And I know they have a lot of electoral votes in the Electoral College. And, and you write that Democrats soon won a significant victory after... Thomas Kane, the Republican one. T tell us about that, please, and, and the lawsuit that was involved, what that was alleging. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm afraid I don't know the population statistic for New Jersey for 1981 off That's the top right. of my head. It's huge. Um, but yes, right. Uh, uh, an eventual margin of fewer than 1,800 votes is really, really slim right. um, in New Jersey. And it's interesting because the the um, the Democrats sort of at the time distanced themselves or, or distanced their loss from the activities of the National Ballot Security mm. Task Force, saying that you know um, we have no evidence that this is what led to um, the defeat of the Democratic candidate uh, James Florio. Um, Florio himself later changes his tune a little bit, um, and, and others have said since that, no, this very well might have made the difference. But at the time, they would not say that. Um, what they wanted to do and what they did say was, we will bring suit against um, the state party and the RNC um, in order to make sure that they cannot use these tactics again anywhere in the country. So um, in December of 81, they, they file a suit. Um, and the following year, in November of 1982, um, rather than go to trial, um, the suit is settled um, by the Republicans in the form of a consent decree. Uh, so they did they well, that consent decree of decree of 1982, what did that specifically entail? And how is it that your article points out, quote, the 2020 presidential election? will be the first in nearly 40 years conducted without the protections afforded by that decree. How, how, right. did, how did that happen, that, that decree, and how serious a threat does it create uh, now that it's no longer in effect? How did, how did it get uh, wiped away? Right. So um, the decree, you know, is... is a bit complicated and detailed, but it essentially sure. says that, um, one, um, that, you know, and, it, and it's important to say that, that it's an agreement. I mean, this is an agreement that, that both sides to the suit made. So the Republicans, without um, admitting any guilt to anything, um, you know, agree that they will no longer um, or that they will never um, organize these sorts of patrols again and that they will never use race as a factor in creating their ballot security um, projects, whatever they might be in the future. Race will play no role of, um, in their creation. 
Hmm. Um, right. And it's also important to know that, um, you know, the suit, again, was brought against the RNC and the state Republican Party. And so that doesn't mean um, that an individual Republican uh-huh. campaign, it doesn't mean that another state Republican Party um, was beholden to this consent decree. So it was just the RNC and the um, and the state party in New Jersey. So, so if a campaign wanted to create um, another version of this ballot security project, um, they could do so, so long as they weren't coordinating with the RNC, and then the RNC could get in trouble. Um, they could do so, uh, you know, without being fear of being held in contempt of court um, under this consent decree. So, um, you know, again, a, a, it you know has a 40-year history, long and complicated. It's it's challenged several times, mm. it's extended a little bit. Um, and in uh, 2009, the judge who had um, originally created it in the early 80s, um, a guy, a local Newark federal judge named um, Dickinson Debevoise, who I had um, you know, the great um, honor to interview on a couple of occasions, um, he and he has a past as a, a sort of um, racial liberal activist lawyer in Newark. He was the first president. Um, of the Newark Legal Services Project in the 1960s, for example. Um, so Judge Debevoise, who creates the decree, um, extends it in 2009 and gives it until um, the end of 2017. And he, I forget the exact quote, but he says something like, um, you know, as long as Republicans have a vested interest in suppressing black and brown votes, there is a need for this decree. And he extends it. Um, in 2016, after the um, the election of Donald Trump, um, Democrats um, tried to have the RNC held in contempt of the decree based on um, various activities of the Trump campaign. And um, the new judge on the case, because um, Judge Debevoise had died um, a couple of years before, Um, found that there was no coordination between the Trump campaign activities and the RNC. And therefore, the RNC was not held in contempt of the the decree, and it was essentially allowed to expire just about the time that – at the end of the time that Debevoise had extended it to. So if I hear you right, the consent decree saying the RNC – won't do this again. Did that just open up the floodgates when when 2017 happened and and the decree was no longer in effect? Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 to be clear, there were you know examples between 1982 um, and now of um, similar efforts or of um, efforts that you know, seemingly used police officers or off-duty police officers um, to attempt to suppress the vote. There were um, other charges of, you know, what's what's known as voter caging, which is actually really key to this story in New Jersey. Um, so, so efforts or allegations of efforts to suppress the vote seem fairly steady <laughs> um, since since 1982 until today. And now without the consent decree, you know, I guess the worry is that, um, one, there can be greater coordination between the, the vast resources of the RNC, 
um, and state parties and individual campaigns. Um, and then also, of course, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but the general atmosphere of um, racial violence and intimidation, um, contemporary examples of white vigilantism, um, those all cause um, great concern, I think. And for those of us uh, who happen to be born white, uh, we don't know what that's like, but there's a long history of intimidation, very official-looking intimidation ever since, uh, well, since the end of the Civil War, when uh, slavery was officially ended. It kind of didn't really end, but that's another story. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking specifically about Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Mark uh, Krosovic, who has written an article titled Armed Poll Watchers, New Jersey's Cautionary Tale Ahead of the 2020 Presidential Election. They messed with it then, and they can do it now. Well, in addition to the uh, patrols, which were officially banned, you write that in 1981 there was white vigilantism and intimidation in the Garden State. These issues resonate today, in the midst of Black Lives Matter movement and the continued GOP attempts to suppress the vote in numerous states. What examples are there of similar or perhaps worse white vigilantism today heading into this big, important election? Yeah, I mean, so so I, I initially started researching this um, New Jersey story and learning about it, as I said, for myself for the first time. Um, this summer, I guess, um, especially in June in the wake of the George Floyd killing um, and, you know, the rallies and protests and marches that were taking place um, all across the country. Um, I live not so far from from Philadelphia. I live just outside of Trenton. And um, and the the episode that happened around that time that really rang a bell for me, that really made me think about um, from the historical research I had done into vigilantism in the 1960s in New Jersey, um, it just it just seemed like I, mean, I don't believe that history repeats itself quite, but um, it seems like history right. repeating itself. And that was that was a um, the specific episode was um, a neighborhood sort of north of Central City called Fishtown, um, in which you know something like a hundred um, mostly young white. Um, men with baseball bats mm. um, started uh, appeared on street corners on blocks in Fishtown, and um, you know very explicitly said that they were there to help support the police um, and to guard against um, the protesters. And I think what is really worrying to me um, about a lot of this, and and again, this is very similar to stuff that I I had written about and discovered in the 1960s, was that sort of blurring between vigilantism and, you know, official law enforcement. Mm. Um, That, you know, the vigilantes often say they are there in support of law enforcement. They are on the side of law enforcement. Um, And, you know... um, and physically, not so much in the case of Fishtown, but, um, you know, when people, other sorts of protesters, like we saw at state capitals um, earlier in the year, right. show up armed to the teeth with sort of military fatigues, um, with slack vests, you know, with all this sort of gear. Um, or we saw in, in different cities when um, 
different sort of federal law enforcement officers showed up on streets, and it was hard to tell what agency they were from or even if they were official law enforcement. Um, You know, it's just sort of visually and then ideologically this sort of blurring. So, you know, it's 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 sometimes not clear um, if this is official or if this is vigilante, and I think that's that actually makes it um, very powerful mm. and and scarier. Yeah, interesting. The uh, people uh, protesting having to wear masks—it's uh, going there in made-up uniforms, the camouflage with their heavy armaments. That is meant to be intimidating, and and it's clear that uh, to me anyway that the Republicans are trying to frame. Uh, uh, they're they're saying, well, there's violence in the cities, but it's really like the uh, secret police that went in and invaded uh, cities like Portland, Oregon, and th- that's it's meant to be intimidating. Clearly, no question about it. Wearing these uniforms—that's what you know. A lot of these uh, groups like to dress up and play uh, play war, <sighs> and people get get frightened and we're talking about the basic right to vote which people in no exaggeration have died fought and died for and lost limbs for the right to vote and i meant to go back and ask about voter caging what that what does that mean i I, I, i'd like to know yeah uh again this was sort of news to me um so the the armed patrols that happened in new jersey in 1981 um, were actually closely related to this strategy of vote suppression called voter caging. And so what the guy who created the project in New Jersey, John Kelly, um, did was sent something like 200,000 letters to people whose names and you know addresses were on uh, public voter rolls. And um, the letters were marked, you know, return to sender. And so you know, I've seen various numbers on this. Uh, one source says there was about 26,000. Another source says there's about 45,000 letters were eventually returned to Kelly, you know, the Republican operative. And then Kelly and others would take those names to, um, you know, the register, the, the superintendent of elections in any given county, and demand that those names be struck from the rolls, from the voting rolls. Oh. Um, and so the names were, were caged. They were put on a list um, of people to be challenged if they were to show up at the polls. Now, in this particular case, um, Kelly had used outdated um, voting lists. And so um, I, have, I have sources that have great details for what happened when he brought the list to the superintendent here in Essex County, where Newark is. And the guy essentially said, look, these are old roles. Um, I've, al- I've already checked the most current roles. And we've already taken this many people off of them for this reason. You know, they moved to another district. Um, you know, they died. I've already cleaned it up. I don't need your help. Thanks anyway. We took care of it. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, Kelly distributes these lists to um, Republican poll watchers. And so one of the purposes of having the armed patrols there is to, you know, sort of support um, the official poll watchers, um, but of course, in like an intimidating way. So it's mm-hmm. one thing if a if an officially registered poll watcher stops you and asks you for um, you know identification or whatever it is that they're allowed to ask you in that particular um, state, and takes you through a process, 
you know, there, there's, it's spelled out legally how those challenge processes are supposed to happen. Um, and that's all, you know, fine. That's procedural. Right. But imagine if, if somebody challenges you with a couple of armed people with armbands, sure. off-duty cops um, with them, that's a whole different um, ball game. And so, and that's what happened um, in 1981. Oh, lovely. And some really interesting, entertaining characters, shall we say, are, are in, well, appeared to be in the New Jersey Republican apparatus. One in particular, Anthony Imperial. Who, who was he and his history, including the 1967 uprisings in Newark? Tell us about him a little bit. And actually, R Roger Stone even was involved in this stuff. Right. So, yeah, I mean, if... if Look, if I were more of a conspiracy theorist, there are all sorts of names that were involved or, or surrounded this effort in 1981 that that are still around today. Yeah. So Roger Stone was um, was Thomas Kane's campaign manager um, in 1981 here in New Jersey, and you know he had already cut his teeth with Nixon and sort of dirty tricks, um, you know. But again. Um, Nobody really accused the Kane campaign of being involved with this um, specific effort. Uh -huh. um, the Kane campaign denied that they knew about it, although once when they did find out about it, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Mm. Um, and, and so Roger Stone was there, but it's not, you know, I have no evidence right. that he knew about this or was involved in any way. Um, but he's there, which is sort of delicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Anthony Imperiali, I mean, this this was where when I discovered that Anthony Imperiali was involved, um, this is where it connected with other research and writing I had done and why I thought, oh, I should really write this article and explain why it's significant that Anthony Imperiali was one of the people involved in this. Um, because Anthony Imperiali was a um, sort of barrel chested, beefy former Marine um, who lived in, you know, born and raised in Newark's North Ward, which mid-century Newark was a largely Italian, Italian-American neighborhood. And when the 1967 uprising occurred in Newark, mm -hmm. um, Anthony Imperiali organized patrols of the North Ward to, you know, ostensibly keep, as he called them, the rioters out. Um, and he maintained these patrols for years and years after that. And he combined the patrols with, um, you know, different services to the community, including an ambulance service, um, which he organized, and um, and a sort of discursive commitment to um, a politics of um, community preservation against racial invasion. Uh -huh. So as the black population in Newark was expanding. Anthony Imperiali was going around holding meetings in the North Ward, telling his neighbors um, to take your for sale signs down. Mm. You know, do not sell, do not flee the city. Um, let's preserve our community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in New Jersey and nationally in some sense for, you know, for a while he was a national figure. And, you know, a lot of people know Anthony Imperiali. A lot of people revere him because they see him as a defender of, community. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, and then on 
the other perspective is the people who revile him as um, you know, a racist, um, a white supremacist, um, a vigilante. The, the governor, um, Richard J. Hughes of New Jersey in the 1960s, actually tried to pass a piece of legislation um, that would have outlawed Anthony Imperiali's group, which was called the North Ward Citizens Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and that governor called them white vigilantes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so flash, for, uh, you know, fast forward to early early 1980s. Anthony Imperiali has spent some time in the state legislature. Nope. Um, he's become so popular that he's um, voted first onto the city council in Newark, um, and then he has um, stints in both houses of the New Jersey state legislature in the 1970s. Um, late in the decade, he switches his party affiliation from independent um, to Republican, uh-huh. and um, and actually runs for. Um, the Republican Party nomination for governor oh um, doesn't really come close. Um, so this is the race that Tom Kane emerges eventually as the nominee and then the winner. Um, and John Kelly hires Anthony Imperiali to run the ballot security project um, in Newark. Uh, wonderful characters. And, you know, I, I keep it does kind of sound like the uh, crew that uh, our president has around him these days, keeping right. our neighborhoods safe, protecting our neighborhoods from being invaded by right. those people. Mm-hmm. It, they're yeah, really... the, the suburban talk is, is, you know, is exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, Biden would uh, destroy our suburbs. Hint, hint. Right. Yeah, that's going on now. And uh, so with the 1982 consent decree gone, Trump's campaign lawyer, Justin Clark, called the absence of that decree, quote, a huge, 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 huge deal for the party, end of quote, uh, promised a, a larger, better funded and more aggressive program of Election Day operations coming up. Now, two, well, three years, I guess, after the decree limits were lifted, Trump has revived the idea of using law enforcement officers to patrol polling places. He said this. This is I mean, he doesn't hide this stuff. He wants to use law enforcement officers to patrol polling places, invoking tactics historically used to scare voters of color. What is what kind of image does that uh, uh, come up in your mind of, of what that would look like? Yeah, you know, again, it's hard to say, and I, you know, I'm not sure when Trump might have first um, floated this idea, but you know, I think it was just last week in an interview with Sean Hannity where he. Um, you know, very explicitly um, suggests using armed poll watchers. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's astounding. Um, you know, again, I think um, the real danger, it seems to me, you know, I, I suppose there is always a possibility that um, the Trump campaign could attempt something that looks, you know, exactly like what yeah. happened in New Jersey in 1981, that they could actually hire people um, to do this. Um, but I think, you know, what seems even scarier to me is mm. the thought of people being um, sort of encouraged or agitated by that sort of rhetoric to just take it upon themselves the way those guys in Fishtown and Philadelphia did to um, come out onto the streets, to show up at polling places um, or in the blocks surrounding them, um, to interfere in some way um, mm-hmm. with voting and you know you know the the um 
the specifics of what happened at individual voting places um, in 1981 in New Jersey really vary. You know, there's stories of a guy being physically dragged out of the polling place by one of these patrolmen. Um, there are other stories of them um, warning people, you know, um, threatening them with physical violence. Um, there are, you know, demands to see different forms of identification and different credentials of voters. Um, there's all sorts of things that they did. Um, and so, you know, again, that run the gamut from like physical violence and physical threats mm. to just sort of like challenging people. And I think that's really important because um, even if nobody were um, actually physically assaulted, right. um, one of the things that these efforts um, accomplish is just sort of a gumming up of the works, just a slowing down mm. of the voting process. Um, you know, sending people to the courthouse to get, you know, their registration information, um, you know, sending them back home. It just slowed things down. And so it's sort of impossible to say how many people might have been turned away Mm. um, because um, things might have been slower than they were before. So I think, you know, any any sort of um, show of, quote unquote, security, um, whether threatening, whether armed, whether not, you know, has the um, the potential to just mess with the system, to slow it down mm-hmm. um, and to disenfranchise people in that way rather than, you know, dragging people out of the polling place, which at least in one case apparently happened. Uh, it is so frightening. And who who would have ever thought that we'd be like this in uh, 2020. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and it's a group effort, folks. We all have to be uh, come aware of what's going on here, and our democracy really is uh, threatened right now. And we're speaking with uh, Mark Krosovic, Associate Professor of History and American Study at Rutgers University, largely about uh, what happened in 1981, a cautionary tale. It happened in New Jersey. Uh, official-looking people going in there to intimidate people and gumming up the works. That's exactly what they want to do. They want to slow it down and frustrate people. You know, who wants to stand in line for hours and hours and then possibly be turned away? So just the intimidation there uh, can do it. Uh, Kristen Clark, who leads the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, uh, said, you know, this is just such an old dirty voter suppression tactic. There's no doubt about this instilling fear and depressing participation in communities of color. Uh, Some skeptics might think, yeah, they can't really be that obvious. Could they be that obvious? I mean, they were obvious when it came to uh, resisting masks and, you know, being safe. But I I wonder, aren't local authorities under local civilian (coughs) control? They... I mean, I guess I guess it would just have to be, as you said, or likely to be just people taking it on themselves. They can't actually be officials doing this, can there? I mean, the, the police are they're not not there at the polls because they want to protect people's right to vote, at least theoretically. But they can't. I mean, can they do this? Can they be really obvious about this now? Or may, will they face lawsuits? I would think. Right. So, I, you know, I'm no lawyer, so I'm not right. sure exactly what the what the legal, you know, jeopardy is. Um, you know, in the case that I wrote about in the early 80s in New Jersey, um, there was some suggestion that um, some of the patrolmen 
um, had been asked to do this by their police supervisors. Ah. Um, and again, you know what? Again, what scares me most about this is that sort of blurring of the lines between, you know, official law enforcement, off-duty law enforcement, vigilanteism, um, you know, and sort of not being clear who is who. And that seems like, you know, one of the greatest dangers here. But, um, you know, the the thing about civilian control of police, I mean, all throughout the 20th century, one of the main um, you know, fights that police department, police officers, their unions have fought is for greater police autonomy um, and to guard that, you know, whatever autonomy that they have accomplished over the course of, of history to really safeguard that. So, you know, early in the 20th century, police reform was often about removing the police department from politics, you know, in the era when these large urban machines were really running cities um, and to the extent that police departments were one arm of that machine, they were they shared in that corruption. Um, and so there's this movement to separate police departments from urban politics um, that sets them on this, you know, really largely autonomous path that becomes really important to police um, and their supporters throughout um, the rest of the century. So, for example, in Newark in the 1960s, um, and ever since then, um, there's been a movement to create some sort of civilian oversight of the Newark Police Department. Um, this began um, at least as early as the as the early 1960s, and it was fought tooth and nail by rank and file police officers, by their unions, and by supporters like Anthony Imperiale. Um, and in fact, our our current mayor here in Newark, Raz Baraka. Um, signed an executive order to create some sort of civilian oversight board, and that's all stuck in the courts right now. Um, so it's an ongoing battle. Um, so, you know, I guess the short answer is that um, civilian control might be, or civil control might be overstating it. Um, you know, it's a constant struggle to hold police departments um, accountable for their um, methods and the behavior of officers. And I think um, that's ongoing and hasn't been resolved at all. And that's, you know, I think further cause for worry. Well, this whole thing about uh, police, you know, Black Lives Matter, and then there's the uh, Blue Lives Matter people. It's, they're right. creating it as, as a real sort of warlike thing between, you know, they talk about uh, violence in the cities and chaos and anarchy in the cities. They're really, it, it's not true. But they're giving the impression there and that the police and police like people can be in there to protect our neighborhoods from those others. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, it, like just blatantly racist. I mean, maybe people don't care about that. I, I find it interesting that uh, according to an African, yeah. African-American friend of mine, racists don't know they're racist, which I still can't <laughs> quite figure out. You were about to say something, Mark. Oh, I was just, uh, you know, it, you know. Just to be a historian again, you know, this the sort of Blue Lives Matter thing um, is, you know, in my mind, not new at all. I mean, this is the, exactly the right. same sort of thing um, that I researched and wrote about in Newark in the 60s, where, you know, the, the sort of dwindling, um, shrinking uh, white neighborhoods in Newark mm. in the 60s mm. um, were really the, the, the sort of support structure for the police department, which remained, despite the city being majority black by the end of the decade, 
remained um, a largely white police force. And, um, you know, when there was a movement afoot to hold the police accountable for for um, sometimes very specific and well-known locally um, episodes of police brutality, um, white neighborhoods, so not just police officers, not just union officials, but regular white residents of Newark showed up en masse to march through downtown in marches that, by my estimation, from the research I've done, dwarfed the marches uh, on the other side of things. Uh That is the marches that um, wanted to hold the police accountable for their brutality. So there's, I mean, Mm. it was in Newark, at least a mass movement that they didn't use the phrase Blue Lives Matter at the time, but it is essentially a precursor to some of those things that we see today. Wow. That is, it's good to learn from history, but we rarely, it seems, do actually learn from history. And there are lessons there to be had. Now, the general counsel for Trump's reelection campaign is Matthew Morgan. He recently said that, quote, Republicans will be ready to make sure the polls are being run correctly, securely and transparently as we work to deliver the free and fair elections Americans deserve. Uh huh. Yeah, there's some key words in there. Are they now prepping the public to accept such actions, such intimidations as fair and legitimate and not intimidating? What do you think about the danger of people buying this argument that, oh, well, yeah, we need to have people there protecting the security. Your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Um, Yeah. You know, I I think they are, um, they are prepping, but, but it's, it's not as if there's not already a lot of groundwork for that lay. It's it's not as if there's not Uh already a receptive audience. Um, So, you know, I think all of this stuff is done in the, in the 1980s to today all of it has been done under the guise of, you know, honest and fair and free elections. It's been right. um, about fighting alleged fraud. And, you know, to be fair, there's no shortage of, um, you know, examples of voting fraud um, throughout American history by by all parties and all sides. You know, and I think the, the image of democratic machine politics right. Um, and corrupt um, democratic machine politics has a really long life, and that in part um, a lot of this still relies on that. Um, but I think in larger part it relies on this narrative that is not just about voting but is sort of about American life and social policy, um, at least in the late 20th century and today. Um, it's about the, the sort of larger narrative of cheating, Um that black and brown people cheat, whether it's welfare fraud, um, you know, Reagan's famous, infamous welfare queen oh, image. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I um, Arlie Russell Hofschild, you know, wrote this book a few years ago, Strangers in, in Their Own Land, about sort of um, alienated white Americans who believe that, you know, in if, if you imagine Americans in line, um, in line to achieve the American dream, they often see black and brown Americans uh. as sort of skipping ahead in line. And that, you know, liberal social policy has allowed black and brown Americans to skip ahead of them. And so there's just this, so the part of the, the sort of receptivity of these messages right. from Republican campaigns, I, in my mind, is this larger narrative of this, this is a population that cheats, and this is how they get ahead, and this is how they attain power. Um, and they're doing it, you know, sort of at at our cost. At our right. 
So we need to be protected from that because we can't have them cheating. We've got to have uh, armed people there watching and making sure they don't cheat. And of course, Absolutely. Trump hates vote by mail. He's really uh, so open about that. He himself voted by, by mail. But he claims the Democrats can easily falsify results and that voting by mail opens up the system to massive fraud. On August 24th on, on the radio, Trump said Democrats will flood the country with 80 million fake ballots. The reality is that in 20 years, over 250 million ballots have been cast by mail. I did a little research. During that time, there have been 143 instances of fraud out of 250 million. That averages out to one case per state every six or seven years, or a fraud rate of 0.00006%. Now he has a postmaster general who is intentionally impeding the ability to vote by mail. I've been a little surprised to talk with people who say they share Trump's concern that there could be uh, fraud, massive fraud, voting by mail. As you say, there's a receptive audience for that. How effective do you think his efforts to suppress votes by mail may be? I, I really, I can't tell. Sometimes I think it will be effective. Sometimes I think, boy, there's a great resistance to it. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. When I was, when I was researching, um, you know, the story about the armed poll watchers and, and Trump was just sort of um, really getting underway um, with his attacks on vote by mail, um, you know, and, and the revelations about what what have been going on in the U.S. Postal Service, you know, hadn't come about yet. And, and I kept thinking, oh, my God, he hates vote by mail because he, he needs people to show up at polls so that they can be intimidated there. Um, <laughs> that's and, <laughs> you know, I, so I don't know if that's if that's true, but, um, you know, that got my wheels spinning a bit. But, um, you know, right, it's it seems to me it's like astoundingly hard to say because, um, you know, we um, in the um, in the primary in New Jersey, you know, my wife and I received our ballots in the mail and we mm -hmm. filled it out and we we dropped it in the mailbox and there was no um, it was ridiculously easy. Right. Um, it it didn't seem, you know, as we were doing it, just it's almost as if the larger world didn't seem to have any bearing on it because we you know did it at our kitchen counter and um Secret so, ballots. Imagine yeah, I mean, that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to say. I think you know. Right. So now people are worried about you know the the post the postal service itself, and so um, you know I hear a lot of people talk talking about you know if you can don't mail in your mail in ballot, but bring it to a drop off location. Ah. Um, which you know, in my understanding, is that that would have the added benefit of we'll get um, you know a fuller um, truer count um, as soon as possible if we're not waiting for stuff or worried about stuff making its way through the mail. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to say. And, I, and, and I, you know, I also think, you know, I'm a college professor, so I, I work, you know, daily with um, not exclusively young people, but a lot of young people. And, you know, my impression is that um, other varieties of voting um, don't really phase a younger generation, um, you know, who do all sorts of things in ways that we didn't do them even, you know, a couple decades ago. So vote by mail seems um, not a big deal and not something that they would be easily deterred from doing. Um, if anything, it seems more convenient. <laughs> 
So um, it's hard to know how how much to worry about that talk. Well, they certainly want to suppress the vote. They don't want people voting. Like, as I said in the beginning, you know, the the powers that be for hundreds of years, they're against a Republican form of government with a small r, Republic Mm -hmm. serving the public. They don't want people voting. It, It you know, they, they want to be able to uh, do it themselves. He uh, openly likes and admires uh, people whose countries don't exactly have democracy, like Putin and uh, Kim Jong-un and people like that. So they're interested in keeping it down, keeping the voting down. Trump, I've known a lot of Republicans in my life, and he's a very different kind of Republican uh, mm-hmm. than we're used to. I, I wonder how significant it is that the Republican National Committee has largely ceded poll-watching activities to a candidate's campaign operations this year. So instead of the RNC actually doing it themselves, they just hand it off to uh, the the, uh, the candidates themselves. There are about 30,000 poll-watchers scheduled to be in 15 battleground states. They're, well, they're being recruited. And I wonder, since that 1982 law is not in effect, will they... Are they are they more able to conduct their suppression activities without restrictions? Right. So I think it, that's that's a really interesting point because it's almost the the exact opposite of what happened in New Jersey in '81, where it was not the local campaign, it was not the candidates' campaign that staged these efforts, but it was the larger RNC and the state party. And here, right? It, I mean, I don't I don't know how explicit this has been made, but certainly a lot of the activity and the rhetoric um, about recruiting poll watchers has been coming from the Trump campaign itself. Um, right. And so so what what does that mean? Is that the RNC um, just not wanting to be um, held accountable? Um, you know, the Trump mm-hmm. campaign can be held accountable, but it won't have um, the same sort of reach within the party as it would if it were the RNC once again beholden to, say, a consent decree. Um and yeah, to yeah, be answerable, to, to be answerable to right. the law, the right. RNC doesn't want to risk that. They've done some things. I mean, they've done quite a few things. Many years ago, here in New Hampshire, uh, they jammed phone lines uh, on purpose, and uh, they did get in trouble for that, so that people couldn't make uh, specific calls at a certain time. And they're very creative at keeping the vote right. down because they don't want people voting. They are, in my estimation against a Republican form of government. They don't like democracy, and voting is the key to democracy. The former head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, Vanita Gupta, uh, you know, he, he's seen the, the country's history of voter intimidation and the president's misleading rhetoric. He recently said, we would be foolish, the Justice Department, we would be foolish not to be vigilant. I, I'm hoping that the federal laws are clear. I know you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, if this situ- situation may involve merely questionable but not necessarily illegal tactics, my guess is they're slippery enough and bright enough to be able to do that and just have, uh, you know, not illegal tactics per se, but just uh, other ways of, of doing it, and of, you know, variations of voter intimidation. Um, and I don't know if there are any unambiguous federal laws. I mean, they, they often go for states' rights, and maybe uh, it's up to the individual states. Do you happen to know, you know, which which uh, trumps the other, federal or state? Right. I, um, so 
Right. I'm no expert in the law here, but my my understanding is is that it depends on what it is you're talking about. You know, uh, of course. Voter intimidation um, is is clearly illegal. Um, you know, nationwide, um, you are not allowed to intimidate or prevent um, in any way or restrict people's right to vote. You know, duly registered um, people with who own the right to vote. Um, but then. <laughs> right. Were these people in New Jersey in 1981 there to intimidate or were they there to protect the Republican poll watchers oh. in these threatening black and brown communities? Um, you know, there's there's a well-known case that I know um, you know about um, in I think it was in Greensboro, um, North Carolina in 2010, where the police department set up a, a checkpoint on a street um near some polling places or near a, a polling place. And, and people accuse them of trying to, um, you know, impede people's movement to the polls. Um, you know, what sort of plausible de- deniability do they have, though? Um, you know, there are other reasons mm. to set up um, checkpoints, I suppose. Um, you know, and, and, you know, another thing that, that I was trying to figure out, and I think the only sort of safe answer is it's really complicated mm. and it depends on the state, is... Um, you know, whether you're allowed to um, carry arms into polling places, Ooh. whether you can carry guns into polling places. Um, and, you know, it's 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 messy and it depends on where you are. Um, some states, um, you know, have open carry laws and they don't explicitly um, exclude um, polling places from that. Other states, you know, have laws about you cannot carry guns into um, schools say, and so many polling places are set up in schools. Right. And so those polling places would be safe, but maybe others wouldn't be safe from that rule. Um, so it's, it's just, I think if there's, you know, this is always safe ground and historians like to say this anyway, you know, it, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, and in that, in that complication, it seems to me there's a lot of room to try different things and potentially to get away with different things. Well, if people the the elections are coming up pretty darn quickly here, if people when they go to vote, assuming they don't do it by mail, if they feel safe enough to go out and vote, you know, from the COVID, and they f- feel intimidated, they see something like this happening. Do you know what avenues are open to them? Should they call their the local Republican or Democratic Party? Should they call uh, the police or or what? What can people do? to protect their right to vote? <sighs> That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, right. So the it is what people did at the time in 1981, and, and I'm saying this because it, it did ultimately produce some results, was um, they sort of seemed to have a blanket approach. They called um, party offices, the Democratic and Republican party offices, they called um, state prosecutors. They called U.S. attorneys. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as I said, they they brought those posters to a judge um, who who issued a cease and desist order on them. Um, you know, they sort of just blanketed any um, outlet um, that might bring redress um, for this for this um, intimidation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what what people who know much more about this than I do. Um, what I hear them saying all the time is, is you know, check your local election um, a website. 
you know, know what the rules are, know what your uh-huh. rights are. If you're going, go prepared. Um, know, you know, if people had known at the time um, what the actual legal procedure for challenging voters was, you know, maybe that effort would have turned out differently. Uh, maybe they could have hold, held those poll watchers to that procedure rather than um, being intimidated, being turned away. Um, so, you know, go informed, I think, is is the message. As the Boy Scouts say, be prepared. And uh, certainly the uh, the various parties, I know the Democratic Party is, always has uh, an apparatus in place. And the Secretary of State, oftentimes, uh, they're really vigilant to make sure that voting can happen and without intimidation. Well, let's hope we can actually practice democracy here. I never thought I'd be saying that uh, ever in my life, but uh, democracy is is threatened here, and they've done it before. And, uh, boy, it seems like they will do it again. Thank you so much, Mark Krosovic, for being with us today. And uh, let's hope we can just have plain old democracy and people voting. Thank you so much for uh, providing the insight that helps on this and to be prepared. Yes, thanks so much for having me, Bert. It was great talking, and fingers crossed. Oh, indeed. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 